As you probably know, we are studying a study this summer called uh, Dependence, or rather Discipline and Dependence, and what we're going to be focusing on are the spiritual disciplines. Uh, I'm just really so excited, guys, to kind of hone in on a practical study that's going to impact our lives this summer and hopefully uh, from here on out. Now, as I was thinking about this, I want to see if you can connect the dots and what these following things have in common. Michael Jordan, considered the best best basketball player of all time, shot 49.7% from the field, which means he missed 50.3% of his shots that he took. Babe Ruth hit 714 home runs, but he struck out 1,330 times. In MLB, by the way, a good batting average is 300, which means you, you are up to bat, you hit, and you get on base 30% of the time. Tom Brady, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, has a completion percentage of 63.6%, which means when he throws the ball down the field, the receiver catches it 63.6% of the time. At MSU, to get in on the ACT, they require a 22 out of 36, which is a 61%. The bar exam for lawyers, the pass rate is a 67%. And hope, maybe you're starting to see a theme here. Is that this, there are many things that we set out to do in life that we know we are going to fail at to some degree. It's like the example of these athletes and these exams. Failure is inevitable at times. And yet, knowing that we will fail, does that prohibit these athletes or the future lawyers or the student from taking the exam or the athletes from competing? No, it doesn't. In fact, the athlete gives everything he or she has to compete, knowing full well that failure will happen. And friends, here's the key. How much more so in the Christian life? We set out in the Christian life uh, to be obedient, right? The Lord says, be perfect as I am perfect. And yet, can we accomplish this? No. Can we do this in and of our own strength? No. Will we fail? Probably more often than not. Yes, I think we will. And so as we enter into the series this summer, the emphasis is going to be on the spiritual disciplines that we are to pursue as Christians. We're going to look at ways that we can strive to please the Lord. But in so doing, we are going to have to be dependent on the Lord at the same time. We'll need to be disciplined and dependent. In other words, the Spirit of God must be at work in conjunction with our own efforts. So this, this, this balance between discipline and dependence is what I'm going to open with tonight. And then throughout the summer, we're going to have teachings on specific disciplines, all the while remembering that we must be dependent in the process. And so with that in mind, I want to pray not only for tonight, but for the summer as well. If you'd bow your heads with me. Father, we're thankful for just the beautiful weather outside. God, thank you for the changing of the seasons that remind us that you are God, not only, uh, Lord, our God, but the God of the universe, Lord, the God who sets into motion the planets and changes the seasons according to your will. Lord, thank you that we were able to study the church in the spring, and now coming off that, Lord, that we can hone in on a study that is intensely practical, Lord, one that affects our life and how we live on a day-to-day basis. Lord, would you... Focus our minds now, clear our minds of distractions, allow us to receive your word in humility, Lord, to examine where we fall short of pleasing you and to change as needed. 
Father, give us grace in this way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, open to Philippians. And in the letter of Philippians, Paul is writing not just to some church, but to a church that he cared for and loved dearly. He uses terms of endearment all throughout this letter to express his great love and care for these people. And as we end chapter 1 and enter chapter 2, Paul is calling the Philippians to unity. He has led out as an example of suffering for the gospel. And in the midst of these trials, the Philippians would now need to be unified in their front. Now, in order to be unified, look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. This would be the key to humility. They had to regard one another as more important than themselves. Verse 4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so again, these are the the keys to having unity as a church, to uh, opposing trials that would come, doctrinal errors. They had to be unified by being humble toward one another, by regarding one another as more important than themselves. And who would be the ultimate example of this for the Philippians? Jesus, right? Jesus, look at verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And verses 5 to 11 are this example. It's, it, it's an elaboration on Jesus as the great example. I want to hone in on verse 9 now of chapter 2. He says, for this reason also, since Jesus has humbled himself, come to earth in the form of man, died on the cross, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. In other words, because of Jesus' humility, or you could say in conjunction with it, this is what God has done. He has bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is God. He has been exalted by God the Father. Okay, but I want to ask the question, why? Why has God exalted him? Keep reading. Look at verse 10. So that, Okay, purpose, following. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I feel like there should be an amen right there. Amen, right? Jesus has been exalted. Why? To the glory of God the Father. That Jesus would be seen as Lord by all. By their bowing of knees, by their confessing of tongues, God has exalted Jesus. And it's in light of this, in verse 12, he says, So then, in light of this, that we get to our two verses that I want to hone in on this evening, verses 12 and 13. So follow along as I read. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so friends, what we're going to do this evening is we're going to take this text and we're going to launch into a study. We're going to look at this in particular, but we're also going to launch into a a quick survey of both discipline and dependence. Discipline for the Lord, but also dependence on him as we try to live this Christian life out. And I was so helped by an illustration by Jerry Bridges, the late Jerry Bridges, who passed away this year. Uh, 
It goes something like this. Imagine you're sitting on an airplane. Okay, you're on a plane. And suddenly the pilot comes on the intercom and says, uh, attention, uh, one of our wings has just fallen off and we are going down. Okay, <laughs> pretty unlikely. But if a wing fell off, how far would that plane fly? Not very far, right? The plane must at least have two wings. Even if one motor goes down, it'll start to do this. If one wing goes off, it's just going to go straight down. And then he, he says, now imagine looking at that plane from the top, and one wing is discipline, and the other wing is dependence. And I think that's a helpful illustration for the Christian life, is that we are so dependent. Okay, how do I want to say this? We, are so, we so must be dependent, but we also so must be disciplined. We must have both. In fact, Jerry Bridges said this, Just as it is impossible for an airplane to fly with only one wing, so it is impossible for us to successfully pursue holiness with only dependence or discipline. We absolutely must have both. We must have both. And so, honing in on verse 12, I want to look at discipline first. And just to give us a definition of discipline, discipline refers to certain activities designed to train a person in a particular skill. Certain activities designed to train a person in a particular skill. And friends, what skill is it that we are being trained in? Well, according to 1 Timothy 4.7, it is godliness. Discipline yourself for godliness, Paul says to Timothy. And so I want to pull a few observations from verse 12 now. And the first is this. The, the first few clauses are kind of just descriptors of where the real command comes in. He says, so then, and then if you skip down, the command is here. He says, so then, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Now I want to ask the question, what does work out mean? What does it mean to work out your salvation? And I think that we're helped if we actually look at those clauses before when he says, just as you have always obeyed. Okay, so what he's got in mind is obedience. He says, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So in Paul's mind, he's using the term work out almost synonymously with obedience or obeying. Okay, but why? Why are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Why are we to be obedient? Again, context. Verses 9 to 11, because Jesus is Lord. That's why he begins verse 12 with, so then. In light of the fact that God has exalted him, he's put uh, him in a position above all else. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. In light of this, so then, Philippian brothers and sisters, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, be obedient. James chapter 2. If you'd like, you can turn there toward the end of your Bible. I think James chapter 2 is a helpful picture of what is going on here. In James 2, verse 14, Paul says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith, can that quality of faith save him? Verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Friends, the comparison Paul is making here, he's not talking about working for salvation. He's comparing kinds of faith. There's the kind of faith which is obedient and the kind of faith 
which is not obedient, which is not true faith. And what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 is that you need to work out your faith. If you have genuine faith, then it needs to be worked out. It needs to be fleshed out in the way that you live. Man, I was so trying to think of a good illustration for this. This is going to fail utterly. But I was thinking, okay, so you've got a muscle soreness, a muscle knot. Let's say you've got a muscle knot in your forearm. Okay, if I say I'm going to work that knot out, what I mean is this, right? I'm going to kind of work it out. I'm going to rub it out. But it assumes that the knot was already there. There's a knot there for me to work out. Now, if I say I'm going to work for a muscle knot in my forearm, totally different implication, totally different meaning. That implies I'm going to do a bunch of like forearm curls or something in order to make a knot form right there. Does that make sense a little bit? And here's why this is important, is how could this verse in Philippians 2.12 be misinterpreted? Well, it could be misinterpreted by exchanging the word for for the word out. If we were to say work for your salvation with fear and trembling, totally different meaning than work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see the difference. It seems small, but guys, this is a mile-wide gap. A mile-wide gap. And so, Paul says, Timothy, in light of Jesus' lordship, uh, not Timothy, sorry, I'm thinking Timothy. He says, Philippians, in light of Timothy's lordship, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me ask this question, though. Did, was Paul asking Timothy to do something that he himself didn't do? Was Paul disciplined in his life? You better believe it. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 12, Paul says of himself, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Guys, Paul was an incredibly motivated, disciplined individual. In the same way, if you're flipping to these, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul now employing athletic imagery. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul knew discipline. He lived a disciplined life. So he's not asking the Philippians, or Timothy for that matter, to do anything that he himself hadn't done. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says that he had been poured out like a drink offering. His time of departure had come. And this is why he could tell Timothy something like 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself to godliness. Because he was doing it. He was living that kind of life. Now, returning to Philippians 2, he says, work out your salvation And then he modifies it. He kind of gives it a description. With fear and trembling. Now, as we discipline ourselves for the Lord, why is it important to do so with fear and trembling? Why are those necessary attitude adjustments that one must have in disciplining themselves? Or, In other words, what would the opposite 
of fear and trembling be? What if someone disciplined themselves the opposite of with fear and trembling? Well, what would those characteristics be? Things that come to my mind would be pride, arrogance, self-reliance, boasting, right? You see that even here, within this verse alone, there's a caution against solely putting one's head down and putting one's foot to the plow, okay? There's a caution against self-dependence, even in verse 12. We're not even to 13 yet. Let me ask, if someone just reads and prays and goes to church and hangs out with believers, does that equate to godliness? There is no way, right? Maybe you know from personal experience, you can just go through the motions way too easily. It's too easy. So just reading and praying, going to church, being in a Bible study, these do not equal godliness. There must also be dependence upon the Lord. Or in other words, there must be fear and trembling. The Christian life requires discipline and dependence. And you know, it makes me think of this. I, I do want you to turn here if you can. If you've got your Bible, go to Luke chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, just a few books to your left. As I think of the type of attitude, friends, that we are required to have in the Christian life, the type of attitude that Paul is, is looking for here and that the Lord is looking for from us, I think of this servant. In Luke 17, verse 7, Jesus speaking, he says this, he says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink. And just by the way, this was customs. This is how these times would have gone about their business, is that the master of the house ate first and then the slave ate. It would have been a great privilege, though, for the slave to be part of the house. Okay, verse 9. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. And friends, I think that's getting at the heart motive. That's getting at the kind of, of attitude that must be necessary as we discipline ourselves to godliness. It can't be something of arrogance or of self-promotion or of boasting. It must be with this type of attitude saying, hey, I'm going to discipline myself with everything I got. Why? Because I'm just doing what I ought to do. I'm just doing what's expected of me. I'm not doing anything special. In the same way, though, it makes me think of James 4.10, which says this, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. God is looking for those who are humble in his presence, those who truly fear his name and want to honor and obey him. And so those are some things to keep in mind as we discipline, as we consider all of these disciplines this summer. We need to keep these things in mind. Uh, within the discipline. And that really does transition well back in Philippians 2, 2 verse 13. Philippians 2 verse 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here we kind of see the dependence aspect of this passage. And here's the neat thing. Lest anyone be tempted to steal credit for their own progress of working out their salvation with fear and trembling, it's really nipped in the bud right here. Not only does the believer have to discipline themselves with an attitude of fear and trembling, but now we see there must also be a dependence upon God in so doing. 
In fact, two different times, look at verse 13. It is God who is at work, and then he says both to will and to work. Two times he mentions that it is God who is working. And so just to kind of break this down a little bit more, in verse 13, the first word is for, which we know connects us back to the fear and trembling. So Paul's going to further explain what this fear and trembling looks like. And he, he really answers the question, why should we have fear and trembling while working out our salvation? Why is fear and trembling necessary? Look again at 13. For it is God who is at work in you. God is at work in you. Uh, what a terrifying thing. I think if we stop and think about this for a moment, it causes fear and trembling. The God of the universe is at work in me. I feel like Isaiah, woe is me, I should be undone. God is working in us as individuals. But also, friends, what a glorious thing. What a glorious thing that is a marker of God's power and his sovereignty. He's at work in us, and let me ask, does God's work ever fail? Do God's intentions, do God's plans ever not come to fruition? No. Instead, when God chooses to do something, it is always accomplished. He always carries out his will and his desire. And friends, I think we, do, we miss something if we don't recognize that God is the one who is at work in us. God is at work in us. We're not just moving along in the Christian life. We're not just creating a sudden desire within to go to church, to read our Bibles, to fellowship. It is God, the God who made all of this, who is working in you and in me. These aren't natural self-willed desires. These come from God. And I just want to remind you, if you've been changed, if you've been changed as a Christian, that's because of God. It's not because of you. You didn't discipline yourself for that one. That was God's doing and only God's doing. But now as a believer, as we come to know Scripture better, as we come to be more content, we're less angry, we swear less, these type of things that are fruits of the Spirit, it likewise is now in conjunction with our efforts. It is God working in us to bring about godliness, to bring about sanctification. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, it's God who is at work, and then at the end he says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God's the one doing it. Now, following this theme of dependence, it seems that the psalmist got it right, and you guys will recognize these words. It's in a popular song we sing often. Psalm 127 verse 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Now notice here, the author has a few things in mind. Number one, he's picturing men working, men building the city. That's clear by the illustration. He's further picturing people guarding the city, the watchmen watching the city. And yet, what is he attributing the success to? Who is he attributing the building to and the guarding to? He's attributing it to God. Now it's important to note, though, the watchman doesn't have this in mind. Okay, there's no picture in our mind as we read that of the builders saying, oh, I'm done, I'm going fishing. Or the watchman saying, I'm not watching anymore, I'm going to go to bed, God's got this one. No, right? There's the implication this guy's still building and this watchman is still watching, but all the while behind the scenes, we know that it is God who is truly causing things to, to come about. God is enabling his people to carry out the task at hand. Likewise, uh, Nehemiah, super cool story. I wish we could study the book of Nehemiah. Uh, 
Nehemiah in Nehemiah 4.8 says that the enemies conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So, quick context, they're rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem, and now in Nehemiah 4.8 he says the enemies of Jerusalem are gathering together, they're going to come and conspire against it. And then the next verse says this, Nehemiah says, but we prayed to our God, and because of them... We set up a guard against them day and night. What do we see from Nehemiah here, just in this one verse? We see both dependence and discipline. He prayed to God and he set a guard. He prayed to God and he set a guard. He acted dependently, but he also took disciplined action in setting up a guard to protect the city. In the same manner then, friends, Paul's point in Philippians 2 is yes, to work out our salvation, but to remember that it is God who is working in us. God is the ultimate one behind the scenes. Now, just as a practical kind of time out here for a moment, I want to ask, which one do you lean more towards? Do you lean more towards the dependent side or the disciplined side? Both are dangerous, and just considering the first, in the dependent side or the, the passive side, the danger would be this. It would be to pull back and, and to just say, hmm, let go and let God. Or, mm, God's at work, why can't I just set the cruise control and let God worry about the results, right? I don't really have to put forth effort. Or maybe, even with a good-intentioned uh, heart, you have set your spirit to pray, and so you pray and you pray and you pray, but you don't actually do anything, okay? There's a great danger here. It reminds me of a joke of the man in the three boats, right? The flood comes, and it starts to rise and gets up to the bottom of the man's house, and a boat comes along. It says, sir, jump aboard. And he says, mm, no, God will save me. The, the flood rises to the second floor. So he goes up the stairs to the second floor. Another boat comes along. Oh, sir, jump aboard. We'll save you. No, 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 no. God will save me. The water rises to the top now, and he's on the roof. And a third boat comes along. And they say, sir, jump aboard. And what does he say? No, God will save me. Well, the flood continues to rise, and he dies. And uh, <laughs> he, he goes to heaven, and he says, Lord, why didn't you save me from the flood? And God says to him, I sent you three boats. What were you waiting for? Right? And, and that's a funny joke, but here's the point. There is danger in only being dependent, in only praying, in only being passive as we approach the Christian life. On the flip side, though, maybe that's not you. Maybe you fall more to the side of discipline. Maybe you're prone to fall into self-reliance, self-discipline. Perhaps you put your head down to the plow and you don't stop and you plow right through people at times without even consulting the Lord, without going to the Word, without going to prayer, without consulting other people in your life who are wise. This is my own tendency at times, and this also can be dangerous. We must strike the balance of discipline and dependence. And I want to just step back now and look at this dichotomy from a 10,000-foot view. And there's several things we need to consider in doing this. And first is this. I want you to consider that while God is at work and does deserve full credit and glory, we must have dependence on him for change. We must remember that the way that he is at work, catch this, the way that he works in us is by changing our hearts and our actions. He is after changing our person as a whole. He wants to change the way we think, the way we act, even the way we emote, the way we feel, right? God is changing us. Well, what does this imply? 
It implies that we cannot just sit on our butt and do nothing. If we're going to be changed, we have to be doing something. We have to be in the game. You can't be changed if you're not thinking, not doing, and not emoting. Right? You have to be doing these things. You must be disciplining yourself. And in so doing, God's Spirit comes in conjunction and causes growth and change to happen. Jerry Bridges says this, there's not a single instance in the New Testament teaching on holiness where we are taught to depend on the Holy Spirit without a corresponding exercise of discipline on our part. In fact, I would go so far as to say this, the biblical authors have no hesitation in calling the reader to implement every agency of the human will in pursuing sanctification in conjunction with the Spirit of God. Let me translate that a little bit. The biblical writers are calling upon your discipline in the Christian life. The famous Puritan Jonathan Edwards in his small document titled Resolutions, if you have not read this, read it. It will inspire you. There's 70 small resolutions that are like, okay, let me just give an example. One of them is like, at any time on earth, Jonathan Edwards wanted to be able for it to be said of him that he was the godliest Christian on the planet at that time. At any time. Wow, that is a lofty resolution. Uh, But anyways, he said this. Even in light of that, he said this. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will and for Christ's sake. Edwards was incredibly disciplined and yet incredibly dependent as well. He needed the Spirit of God for enabling. Now, what I want to do now, as we kind of begin to wind down, is survey five passages that kind of outline this discipline and dependence. There are many, many more, but I want to look at a few. So if you've got your Bible, flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're just going to look at these and then move on. I just want you to see how both discipline and dependence is prevalent in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul writing again, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay, so Paul's affirming his dependence on the Lord for being who he was. And then he says, And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Which aspect is that? That's the discipline, right? And then look what he says, Yet not I but the grace of God with me. Paul flip-flops like three or four times, the grace of God, but I labored, but actually it wasn't me. You see this? It's discipline and dependence. Okay, from 1 Corinthians, flip to your right to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you were here, we looked at this a couple Sundays ago at Grace. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writing again. He's speaking to Timothy. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong. Okay, this is an imperative command. It's a passive command, but it's an imperative command. Timothy, be strong. And yet, he says, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He's calling Timothy to have the discipline to be strong. And yet, he's saying, "Mm, it it can't really even come from you. You've got to draw upon the grace of God in order to do this. Timothy couldn't just sit back and do nothing. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said to be strong. He would have just said, keep being weak. But he said, be strong in the grace. Okay? From 2 Timothy, flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
verse 7. Paul says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. There's that verse. We love it, right? Look at verse 10, though. He's going to give the reason. Again, the word for. For. It is for this that we labor and strive. In other words, it is for this reason, Timothy, that I'm about to tell you that we discipline. And then what's he say? Because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Paul says, yes, Timothy, you've got to discipline yourself to godliness, but the reason you're going to do this and really the power behind this, the strength to be able to do this is going to come from fixing your eyes on Christ, from drawing upon His strength and grace, from setting your gaze on Him, not on yourself, not just on your goals along the way, but looking to Christ, really being dependent upon Him. Flip to the second to last book of the Bible, Jude. This one's awesome. I just love these. Jude chapter 20. By the way, oh, chapter 20. I was just about to say, there's one chapter in the book of Jude. There are not 20 chapters. One chapter, very small. There are 25 verses. And we're going to look at verse 20. Jude says, But you, beloved in contrast to all the false teachers that he's just been talking about, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Okay? So there's the command. In other words, you've got to employ some sort of discipline within yourself to keep yourself in the love of God. Now look at verse 24. It's a doxology, a praise of sorts. And Jude says, Now to him, speaking of God, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Just within three verses, he almost does a play on words here using the same verb. He says, you, Jude, keep yourself in the love of God. Oh, but by the way, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Okay, you see, in a sense, the dichotomy here. There is a discipline and a dependence. Lastly, this one really excited me. I got to tell you, I don't typically advocate for this, but I'm not going to lie. I flipped to the, to the book of 1 Samuel to go looking for an example and turn to this page. I was floored. Go to 1 Samuel. You've got to go to this one. Again, I'm not advocating that form of Bible study. I'm just saying that's what happened. 1 Samuel chapter 17. So here's what's happening. David is a shepherd boy. David is small. He's not physically impressive. Goliath, just by the name I think you know, very physically impressive, very large, not a small shepherd boy. And David says this. Let's pick up in verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go first and fight this Philistine. Alrighty. Verse 33. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Okay, let's just pause right there. That's pretty impressive. A lion or a bear came and took one of the sheep and David went after him. And you imagine the bear standing up and David grabbed him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Wow. All right. Verse 36. Your servant 
he's speaking of himself, has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Now, if you were to just take a guess here, which aspect of discipline or dependence do you think David is appealing to here? I would say discipline. I would say he's kind of talking about himself here a little bit. Hey, listen, I can handle this Philistine. I took on a bear and a lion with my hands. But friends, look at the next verse. Look at verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Whose credit did the victory over these, this barren lion belong? Who did David place the credit upon, himself or upon God? I think we could almost say both, right? He said, listen, I can take this guy because I've done this, but it was the Lord who allowed me to do it. And friends, I believe the same paradox is true in Philippians 2 and in our lives. We must be disciplined and dependent. So, just as we close now, flip back to Philippians chapter 2. I want to draw one more nugget from this passage. In the midst of this paradox of discipline and dependence, what's the outcome for us? Well, we know the outcome for us is that we're made more into the image of Christ, right? We're leaving sin behind. We're pursuing godliness. Our joy in God increases as a consequence. But in addition to our benefit, look at the end of verse 13 one more time. He says, It is God who is at work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as God works in us, and we reciprocate the effort by working out our salvation with fear and trembling, the result is God is satisfied. God is pleased. God is happy about the outcome. Now, we need to be careful here not to think wrongly. It's not as though God were lacking something beforehand. God was not lacking any joy or contentment. He wasn't lacking pleasure. Further, he was not pleasantly surprised by this. He's not surprised when we are sanctified, when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so to answer this question of how do we understand this verse, I think we need to set it in the context of sovereignty. The sovereignty of God in this whole deal. God has ordained sanctification From the get-go, I want you to listen to this verse, Romans 8, 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined, Andrew talked about this from Ephesians, "to to become conformed to the image of his Son. What did God predestine us to? Not just salvation, but sanctification. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. One book back, Ephesians 2, right? 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast. But what does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do not stop there. Then what's it say? Which he prepared beforehand which God prepared beforehand. God has prepared the good works which we will do before. He has predestined it. He's predestined this whole thing, this whole working out of our salvation. He has predestined. And therefore, when God's plan comes to fruition, when his predestined plan for you and I comes to fruition, he has brought great joy. Is this a surprise to him? Heavens, no. It is not a surprise. He's pleased, not because it was a surprise, but because he foreknew it. Because it's just as he planned it. 
So ultimately, God will accomplish his good work in us as he desires. But in the meantime, friends, we must be those who discipline ourselves to godliness. We must be those who work out our salvation, not work for, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And just lastly, I want to ask, what does this look like? What specifically? Okay, great, I'm pumped. I'm excited. I want to do this. How do I work out my salvation with fear and trembling? How do I be disciplined and dependent? What does this look like? You're going to have to come back the rest of the summer to find out. (laughs) Sorry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for how clear it is, Lord, how it aligns perfectly, how the Old Testament and the New Testament and within the New Testament, we, we see the same teachings from different perspectives using different words and word pictures, God. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to a life of discipline. Lord, give us the strength to do so, we ask, we beg. Lord, align our desires with yours, which is that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. God, we want to be like Jesus. We really do, and not for our own sake, but for your name's sake. Lord, we want to be living mirrors, living reflections of Christ on earth. And so, Lord, would we be a group who is disciplined and yet also dependent. Lord, your grace toward us and yet our own personal pursuit in the Christian life, Lord. What a thing. What a paradox and yet a a wonderful, beautiful thing, Lord. God bless this summer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.